You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 8. If you don't have one, there is one in the seat in front of you, or you can follow along, or you can download the ESV app real quick on your phone and uh, turn to Hebrews 8. We've been working our way through this book, and we're in week, I don't know, but uh, we're over halfway done. So um, I am not a fan of, of updates, you know, when your computer says you need to update or your phone says you need an update. That just shows that you were incompetent the first time, in my opinion, but that's, I may just be getting old. I am six months out of, from 50, so I think it's that. Uh, I don't like new things. I had to get a new phone recently, and I had to turn in my old phone, and I went into the Verizon store, and the lady's like, okay, thank you. I said, I just, just so you know, I hate this. I said, I don't want a new phone. I said, I hate phones. And she said, explain. I said, I will explain. Thank you very much. I'm going to tell you why I hate. phones make us stupid. They make us dumb. Some of you have no clue how to get to the church without your phone. You're like, ah, oh, Siri, get us to the church. We've been going for eight years. I don't know. You know, and you, have to, you, you can't read a map, but you can follow a blue arrow that says turn left here. It's, phones made us stupid. We don't know anybody's phone number. The only phone number you know is 911 or the operator. It's zero. Right? You don't know your work's phone number. You don't know your grandma's phone number. You don't know. We don't read books anymore. We listen to them. We don't go to sporting events. We watch them. Right? We don't go to a movie. We watch a movie on our phone. And probably the worst thing about our phones is they have killed the art of the prank phone call. They have killed it. <laughs> I mean, if you lived through the 80s, the prank phone call was the thing until Star 6-9. Uh, it was beautiful and it's gone. It's a, it's a lost thing in our culture. It's so horrible. Anyway, I am a fan of old things and not new. And, and our culture is pushing, oh, you need new, you need the new car because the new car drives itself and does this and has leather this and, and all these things. You need new. Our, the new formula for this toothpaste really cleans your teeth. Our old formula kind of cleaned your teeth, but the new one really will get them sparkling white. All right, you need the new refrigerator because the old refrigerator just kept things cold. This one keeps things cold and you can tweet and watch TV from it. Right? And so we're always told we need an upgrade. Although I will say a few weeks ago, I went and get my, my youngest son got him his first phone and, and they said, let's look at your plan. Maybe you need an upgrade. I'm like, I don't need an upgrade. They're like, no, no, let's see. It might be cheaper for you. And they looked at it and they said, oh, wow, this is a great plan. In fact, we don't do that. This is an old, I said, it is an old plan. It's like eight years old. We don't even do this anymore. Don't change this plan ever. I'm like, I won't. Thank you very much. So I was vindicated in that moment. But the writer to the Hebrews today is going to say, and he is correct in saying, new is better when it comes to this. There is a plan so to speak, that God is offering that is better. It is far better. It is much more better, if that's even a, a fragment that's applicable, English teachers. It is much more better than the old that he is offering us today. And what that is and why it's better, that's what we're gonna look at as we unpack Hebrews 8. So I hope you found it. And, and here's my, the two goals I have. If you are already a, a Christian this morning, that... that then my, my prayer has been that this would just be encouragement to you, that it would deepen your love for the Lord Jesus, that it would deepen your faith, that you would be just reminded of these things that he has given you, that this plan that you've signed up for already, that is yours in Christ, that you'd be encouraged in that. And if you're not a Christian, that you would consider, hey, this is a great deal, that you would consider this deal that God, the creator, sustainer of the universe is offering you this morning. 
that you would consider it. Our text really just breaks into two sections, real simple. One through six, he's gonna continue in this, this theme that he's been given that Jesus is better. He's a better high priest. All right, we've seen that last week. He's better, than Mel- he's better than Levi. He's better than Aaron. He's of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And we unpack that. What you, I'm not gonna recash it. You can go listen to last week's. But he's just better as a high priest. And because he's a better high priest, he can mediate this new deal, this better deal. And that's what the second half of the text is. We're gonna focus most of our time there, but I will work through the first half quickly so we can get to that. That, that Christ is a better high priest. He's gonna give us a couple reasons and then we'll move into the deal. So let me read the first six verses and then we'll unpack it. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So he starts saying, now the point is this, which is great. Because, you know, a lot of times you got to dig in. What is this really about? And Peter says, oh, you know, Paul, I don't understand Paul. Do you understand Paul? But this writer says, let me tell you what this is about. You have a high priest, a perfect high priest. That's chapter seven, chapter six. And he's just better. And he's going to give three reasons in these six verses. First, first reason is that this one is seated at the right hand of the, on the throne of majesty in heaven. He is sitting down, which you're like, well, so am I. So what's significant about that? Because in the temple and in the tabernacle, there was one piece of furniture that you would not find. There's no couches. There's no love seats. There's no benches. There's no place to sit because the work of the priest was never done. It's like in our house, vacuuming dog hair. It is never done. I vacuum one room, got it all up go into the other room, vacuum, come back. I got more dog hair. It's like my dogs are just literally like throwing hair everywhere. If, if you're, uh, you're the one who does laundry in your house, you got kids, you're never done. P- khaki pants, shorts, t-shirts. That you're just constantly, because the work is never done. The Old Testament priest's work was never done. But for Christ, his atoning sacrifice, he sits down because he is finito, he is donezo with that part of his ministry. Now, there's still the interceding ministry, but he is done with his atoning ministry. He's just better. So the first reason he's better is because he's done. Second reason is because of location, 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 right? It's all about that real estate agent, right? It's location. Where is Jesus ministering? He's in heaven. The point in what we are saying is this. We have a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the, underline this in your mind, true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. He is in the temple in heaven, which Moses didn't build, the the Levites didn't build, the Israelites didn't build. It's there. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest, for Christ also, 
to have something to offer? If he were on earth, and he's not, is the implication, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. We looked at this last week. He, if he was on earth, he couldn't be a priest. Why? Because he's not a Levite. He's from Judah. So he, he doesn't fit the law. He had to be the Melchizedekian priesthood. But those priests, the Levites, it says they serve as a copy and a shadow. They're not the real deal. They're just copies. Moses, when, when he was going to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, see that you make everything according to this pattern. God on the mountain is showing him, here's what I want you to make for these people. This is the book of Exodus. This is what I want it to look like. And it's just a copy. It's based on something that's the original. It's not the original. It's not a bad copy. It's not a fraudulent copy. It's just not the original. There's, there's one original Chick-fil-A. All Chick-fil-A's are great, but there's only one original. It's not even called Chick-fil-A. It's called something else, right? Get you a chocolate shake. Get you a, co- a cookies and cream shake. Get you a spicy chicken with no pickle sandwich. It's all good, but it's not the original. And his point is, Jesus serves in the original. This, the rest of this is just copies. So he's better. He's in the heavenly places, not limited by earth. He's better because of that. He's better because he's done. And he's better because he brings a better offering, ultimately. Again, it said that each one had to bring their own offering. All the priests had to bring their own offering. They bring a goat. They bring an ox. They bring something from themselves. What does Jesus bring as the priest? He has nothing in his hands. He brings himself. Himself. Right? That's his offering. It's very similar. It's, It's... we looked at typology last week of Isaac and Abraham. Remember Abraham? He has this miracle son named Isaac, Yitzhak, which means laughter, right? And, and he is the promised child. And he's the one that all these promises are going to come through. And then God shows up one day and says, I want you to take Isaac on the mountain and kill him for me. And so what does Abraham do? He says, okay. And they get on their donkeys and they ride and then they leave all the men behind. And Abraham literally puts the wood on the back of his son and his son has to carry his own wood up the mountain. Who else had to carry their wood up a mountain? I don't know. And they get to the top of the mountain and as they're walking up, Isaac looks at his daddy and says, Dad, I got the wood and you got the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And you know, it just, Abraham's heart had to be just broken as he says, God will provide the sacrifice, son. And God does. As he lays his own son on the altar to kill him, and then God provides another. But his, the, the idea there is he offers what? Himself. What does Jesus bring? He brings himself. One sacrifice for all. He's better. Why? Because he's done. He's better because he's, he's in the real deal. He's in the original temple in heaven. He's done because he brings a better sacrifice. And so he closes the section saying, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent. Not just excellent. It's not just more excellent. It's much more excellent than the old. His ministry is just better. Right? We we should never say, well, our ministry is better than your ministry. Right? Our church is better than your church. We have no right to say that. But when, when we're talking of Jesus, he says, his ministry is much more excellent than the old. This promise that he brings, this new deal that he brings is much more excellent than the old. And what he is offering, and he kind of tells us in this, is what's called the new covenant. Right? That's a churchy word for us in our culture. That's not a real popular word. You may live in a neighborhood that the covenant is make sure you walk your dog on a leash and keep your grass cut. That's your covenant, Right? But in, in Bible times, a covenant is a serious deal. It is a solemn uh, 
for lack of a better term, stronger term, a contract between two parties. They voluntarily enter into this, this binding relationship where responsibilities are, are given, promises are made. It's more, it's more than just, oh, I promise I'll do this. That, you know, it's more than just even a contract where you can just, you know, oh, if I get the lawyers to get me out of it. No, they, it's so serious and solemn in the original, you know, times back in the, you know, Abraham's day or, or whatever, when you would cut a covenant, and that was the language they used because the Hebrew word means to cut. When you'd cut a covenant, you'd take an ox or a lamb or a goat and you would cut that puppy in half. And you put one over here and one over here and you would both walk in between together. And the idea was, if I break this covenant, may I be like this goat. That's how serious it was. So it's not just like, oh, I promise. I signed my name. I checked the box. This is a, it's a serious deal. And there's all sorts of covenants in the Bible, all sorts of types. One of the most common types of covenant in the Bible is what we call a, a bilateral covenant, which means this, that both parties were agreeing to do something. I'm going to do this. You're going to do this. We're entering into this. We're both promising to do this, all right? And so you see this multiple times in the scripture where you see, like, for instance, David and, and Jonathan, Saul's son, they enter into a covenant where Jonathan says, I know that you're supposed to be the king, and I'm not, and I'm going to support you. And David says, and I know that you're my best friend, and we're going to be best friends forever, and I will never hurt your family. And they enter into a covenant. They both make promises. Marriage is a bilateral covenant. You stand before an audience and before God and a pastor and say, I promise, I swear that I will do this. In sickness and in health, and better for worse, I do, as long as we both feel live. And then, and then she repeats after him, and they both agree to this. This is a bilateral covenant. We're both agreeing. That's one type of covenant. But there's another type of covenant, which is called a unilateral covenant, which is only one party is, is agreeing to do something. I will do this, Period. Doesn't matter what you do. I am going to do this, right? It's not conditional. So for instance, when God tells Noah, I will never flood the earth again like that. What is Noah's responsibility? Okay. He has no responsibility, but it's a covenant that God is saying, I will never destroy it. How do we know it's true? Because he puts a rainbow as a sign of the covenant because covenants often had a sign that went along with them. God goes to Abraham and says, and you, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. I will bless you. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. What does Abraham have to do? It's nothing. That's a promise that God is making Abraham, period, end of story. Now, there is a sign with that covenant. It was called circumcision. But that was God's promise, I'm doing this. That's a unilateral covenant. And, and the old and new are gonna be different because of this one thing. And so he says, the old is inferior, it's, it's broke, in essence. The new is better. If the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. It's the same argument he used with the Levites. If the Levites did their job, I wouldn't have to have another priest. But the Levites couldn't do their job, so I had to have another priest. The first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, had faults. It was, it was broke. But the reason it's broke is probably not what you think. It wasn't broke because it was bad. Ten Commandments, bad? No. Deuteronomy, bad? Leviticus, bad? No. Jesus kept the law perfectly. The fault in the law wasn't the law. The fault in the law was that those who were called to obey the law, it didn't help them obey the law. The faultiness was in not the law, but in the ability to keep the law. It did nothing to help me keep the law. 
It just told me what the law was. It didn't enable me to do it. That was the fault. And because the Mosaic covenant was a bilateral covenant, remember both, there's, that means two promises. This is what God says. If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, if you keep it, then you will be my treasured possession for all the earth is mine. And then you shall be a kingdom of priests. So the old, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant was, if you obey, I'm gonna bless you. If you don't, I'm dropping the hammer. And that's what happened because the Israelites failed to obey constantly. And so they got taken out of the land and they got all these things happening to them. That was the old covenant. It didn't, and they knew what to do, but it didn't empower them to do what they knew to do, right? And so the 10 commandments is not bad. Nothing wrong with having them in school, but the problem is you can put Ten Commandments in every school in America. You can put it in your car, in your house, and it ain't gonna help you keep the Ten Commandments. That was the faultiness of the Ten Commandments. And God knew this because the law was never plan A. It was a stopgap. It was, it was a, a, a short time to get you to what? To Christ. Because God installed the law not so that you could keep the law, so that you realize you couldn't keep the law and you would cry out for grace and mercy and for a savior, which he would send, which is what the plan was all along. This is why he quotes the book of Jeremiah, which is part of the Old Testament. When he says this, he finds fault with them, the people, when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with Judah and praise God, us Gentiles are grafted in, that's Romans 11, and we are children of Abraham, that's Romans 4. And it wasn't like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them from the hand to bring them out of Egypt, not like that covenant. For they didn't continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The old covenant is not like the new covenant. What is the old covenant like? Old covenant is bilateral. What's the new covenant? It's unilateral. Old covenant is thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. New covenant is I will, I will, I will, I will. That's the new covenant, right? And that's what he's saying, right? That I'm gonna make a new covenant with them, right? And what's interesting about the old covenant is this. You constantly were reminded of how you, what you were supposed to do and, and how you couldn't do it. Like you were supposed to, Deuteronomy 6, you're supposed to write it on your foreheads and you had to put it on your door and you had to put it around your wrists and you had to, you know, I had a bunch of Jewish friends growing up and you go into their house and they had a little law on the, on the side of the door when you, you kiss it when you come in, you kiss it when you leave. And, you know, it was constantly a reminder of not only what God said, but it was constantly a reminder that you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. You fail. But the new covenant, this new deal that he's offering, he says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws where? Not on their wrists, not on their forehead, not on their walls, not on their doors, not on their, in their hearts and on their minds. It's an internal deal, All right? The, the first one was don't, 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 don't do. This one is I'm gonna actually give them a heart to do what is right. And so the, the, the first thing that the, the new is better than the old is it actually transforms us from the inside out. It actually does enable us to do what God wants us to do or the old didn't. It's, it's what Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be what? You got to be born again. What does that even mean? You got to be made new. The, Ezekiel, the prophet says this, I will give you, he's talking to the people, I will give you a new spirit, and put, a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone from flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. The idea is this, God takes your heart of stone. That, do you just see the laws? Don't, 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 don't. He actually gives you a new heart where you actually desire to serve him. 
That you actually have not only a, a heart to obey him, now you have the ability to obey him. It's not just don't, 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 a bunch of negatives. It's I want to obey God. And this is why I've been saying this entire book. If you have never in your life had a desire, even a small flicker to obey Christ, to love God, then you have not experienced regeneration or rebirth in Christ. Because when he puts his spirit in you, even if it's small, there is a desire to obey. And now there's the ability to obey as well. Because if any man is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. If you have been crucified with Christ, it is not Bill Fowler who lives, but Jesus Christ who now lives in me. 1 Corinthians 2, we don't, know, we don't understand the mind of God except those who have been given the spirit, the mind of Christ. That's what Paul argues, that we have been given the mind of Christ himself so that now, not only do you know what God is saying, you have the ability to do it. And when you face sin now, there is no temptation that has overtaken you, but as such is common to everybody else in this daggum room. That's my version. And God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with that temptation will provide the way of escape that you will be able to endure. That is because of the new covenant, not the old. That second Peter, that you have everything you need, Christian, right now pertaining to life and godliness. How? Because you have become partakers of the divine nature. Not that you're divine, just because your boyfriend says you're divine, you are not divine, but you have become a partaker of the divine nature, the spirit of the living God. This is the why the new is better than the old. The old is don't, 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 but I don't have the ability. Now it's here, let's do this. And I've given you the ability to do that. I'm walking with you in that so that if I walk by the spirit, I will not never carry out the desires of the flesh. The old is gone, the new is better. That's the first reason. It transforms us from the inside out. And look, if you're struggling with sin and you're in the middle of it and you're like, I don't know if this is true. I don't know if I can. I promise you on the authority of scripture it is. That you have what you need to defeat the evil one, to resist him and he will flee. You do. And some of us have seen this. We, if you've been saved 5, 10, 15 years, you remember when you first got saved? I was foul mouth fowler. Dropping an F-bomb every third word. Right? And then as time went on, Spirit of God, refine me, refine me. That, that went away and then it became something else. And we see life change. That's what he does because he gives us a new heart and a new desire and a new ability to change. That's what he offers. Not just a don't. It's a transformation from the inside out. But that's not all. He says this, I will be their God and they shall be my people. How good is this? Y'all, this is good stuff right here. It didn't say like in Exodus, if they do, then I will be their God. If they do, then I will, they will be my people. What does he say? I will be their God. They will be my people. Have a nice day. Period. End of story. That's it. Unilateral. Right? And this is not the way the old covenant was. If you want to read how it was for the old covenant, there's a little Old Testament book called Hosea. All the young Christian ladies have read Redeeming, not all of them, but you've read Redeeming Love. I know. All right. Okay. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but I've already had a bunch of people tell me about it this morning. There's a book called Hosea. Here's what Hosea is about. There's a prophet named, very good, you guys are brilliant. Uh, so there's this prophet named Hosea and God tells Hosea to go marry a prostitute. You're like, wow, I need to read this book, yeah. 
So he does. He marries a prostitute. Her name is Gomer, which is a horrible name for a woman, by the way. It's Gomer and, and Hosea have a, a couple kids. The first kid's name, they name their first child Lo Ruhama. Lo is the Hebrew word for no. Ruhama is the word for mercy. So they name their first kid No Mercy. It's a great name. How do you like my kid? No Mercy. Then they have a second child. They name that child Lo Ami. Ami is the word for people, my people. So they have no mercy and not my people. And it's supposed to be symbolic of how Israel is not gonna see God's mercy and not gonna have be his people anymore. Why? Because they continue to rebel because that's the old covenant. Now in the end, the beauty of the book is, I won't spoil, I will spoil it because it's the whole Bible anyway, that Hosea has to go after his wife who runs off again and redeem her and bring her back and say, you will no longer be a prostitute. And she does, and she stays with him and is faithful, which is the picture of Israel. They're gonna not be his people, but then he's gonna go and get them in the end. That's the whole Bible. But here's the point. That's the old covenant. Not my people, not mercy. What does he say here? You are my people and I am your God, period. Not conditional, not based on you, right? And the idea is this, and we get this. Those who are parents, and you take your kids to Target, and they're acting a fool. You're like, these are not my children. These are my husband's children, right? I says, that's not us. You are my people. And the new covenant makes us belong. It makes us belong. It makes us what, which is our heart's desire. We all want to belong, right? That's what we do. We want to be part of something. That's why some of you dress a certain way or you listen to a certain music or you go to a certain this. You want to be. This is why I asked some guys about, you know, your sports teams. You'd be like, yeah, we waxed y'all on Monday night. I'll be like, who's this we? Is your name Ronald Acuna Jr.? You ain't on that team. You ain't playing for Georgia. You didn't wax UAB yesterday. They did. You didn't. And the first quarter, it was kind of iffy. Let's be honest. But we did nothing. We is sitting on the couch eating Funyuns. They... We're playing the game, but we want to belong. That's us. We, you know, we're Georgia nation, right? But that's because we want to belong and there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is it's always based on something else. For God, he says, no, I will be their God. They will be thy people and that's it. And they can act a fool. And we already saw in Hebrews three that Jesus is not ashamed to call you his sister and you his brother. How good is that? How much better is that than the old, right? How much better is that? That even if you are the prodigal, right? What does the, the father do when he sees the prodigal son? You know, you love that story when the prodigal son comes forward. And he's like, I just have to get in. I just got to get a job. And so he says, father, I'm no longer willing to be called your son. Make me a servant. And the father, it's not like he's not even listening. He's like, give me the robe. Give me the ring. Kill the cow. Let's party. And that is God saying, you will be my people. I will be your God. I will transform you from the inside out until one day when my son returns, you'll be glorified. Don't be need for anything because there'll be no sin, there'll be no anything. But until that time, I'm gonna make you new and you are mine and I am yours. That's good. And you know what else that reminds us of just application-wise? When one of us wanders and then comes back, how do we treat him? Like a brother. We restore one like a brother oh, I know where you were the last six months. Really? The same place you could have been yet for the grace of God. So hush and let's celebrate because our brother has come home, right? That's what the church does. 
Hadn't done it traditionally very well, but we're supposed to. You'd think we'd get it by now. Let's continue. Another reason. He says, they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, know the Lord. Why won't they teach? For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. And he's not saying you don't need Sunday school teachers anymore, seminaries or sermons. That's not his point. I mean, the Apostle Paul is clear. The Lord gives teachers, pastors, evangelists, why? For the building up of the body of Christ. But the idea is this. Remember, under the old, who knew the Lord? Well, you had the Levites and the priests who had the copies of, the few copies of the Bible that they had. And, you know, if you were from the tribe of Gad or Dan, I mean, all you could do is walk into the tent and be like, here's my goat. Try to peek around. Stop trying to peek. That's not for you. It's for only us Levites. Can I just go in? No, you can't go in there. Just for us. And even then, you know, once you go into the holy place, what the Levites could go in. And then behind that, the holy of holies, only that high priest once a year. Nobody knew. Right? Nobody had copies of, oh, I got Deuteronomy in my quiet time this morning. Nobody had quiet times. What are no quiet times? You went to the synagogue. This guy was your priest. He was your mediator. He would make your sacrifice. That was it. Done. This is why the Roman church that's just what happened in the dark ages. The Roman church would only speak in Latin and nobody knew anything. And so they were completely required of this dude wearing a Jedi robe speaking Latin. No one knew anything, right? Because there was this separation of, oh, and we can't let you take the wine and the bread because you might spill the blood of Christ. I mean, it was crazy ludicrous. And what he's saying is this. No, no, no. In the kingdom, you've been saved 70 years. You've been saved seven minutes. You all have equal access to God the Father. Now, you might not know as much, but you have equal access. This guy, the greatest, Billy Graham, and the seven-year-old who just invited Jesus into their heart, they have the same access to God the Father. I don't care if you, you know, memorize, you know, this, his whole point is there's no Eagle Scout Christian. Oh, you got the Leviticus badge. You memorized Leviticus backwards. Yeah, you got that badge, right? You, you tithed 20% last year. You got that badge. It don't matter. No badges anymore. Everyone has equal access. Why? Galatians 3, in the kingdom, in the gospel, there is neither Jew, Greek, slave-free, male or female. He's not saying that there's not Jewish people and Greek people. He's not saying that there's not male and female. His point is everyone's equal. Why? Because we are all in Christ. And if you are in Christ, if you're his, you're Abraham's offspring and you're heirs. Your brother, your sister, or family. There's no one better, more valuable. There's different roles, clearly, but there's no one that's, oh, you got more access than me. And that's his point, which again tells us, where does pride come into play? Our church is better. I've been here longer. This is my seat. I sit here every week. Where does that come into play? It shouldn't. Because pride comes before the fall. God is opposed to the proud. And he gives grace to who? The humble. So I don't care if you know the book of Romans in Latin, or if you have two Bible verses memorized, John three sixteen and Jesus wept, it don't matter. God's not impressed. And we shouldn't be arrogant about it because we all come through the same high priest who mediates the same deal to every one of us. And it's better because it transforms us from the inside out. It's better because it makes us belong and it's better because we all have equal access. And that's not even the best. The best is the last. Believe it or not. I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. Let me read it again. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sins 
no more. It's a double negative in the Greek, which doesn't, like in English, make it positive. It actually strengthens the negative. I will no not, never remember their sin. I will be merciful. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. I will not give them what they deserve, which is death. The wages of sin is death. Separation from God from all eternity. And I want you to think about what is that one sin that maybe you're hidden, maybe you committed 20 years ago that still bugs you, that you're still gets you, that bothers you, that thing that you just can't get over? I want you to think about that one thing in light of this verse. What, is, what does God say about that? I'm going to be merciful to you. I'm not going to remember that. It's not that he forgets, like, oh, God forgot. So he chooses not to remember. He's not dragging, bringing it up every time you feel, oh, remember what you did last Tuesday and last Wednesday and last Thursday and last Friday. No. As far, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How good is that? How much better is that than the old deal? <laughs> I mean, if you lived in the old covenant... I mean, every time you fail, got to bring an animal, got to bring an offering. I mean, you're wearing the path to the synagogue. You got yourself a goat, taking a goat up to the Levite. Here's my goat. Weren't you just here yesterday? Yes. Go back home. Here's my dove. I'm killing birds like a duck hunter. I don't even know. Why do all these animals keep dying for me? Constantly. Constantly, constantly, until Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. One sacrifice, all my sin past, all my sin present, all my sin even future, all in Christ, because he shows mercy, because he remembers our sin no more. That's what this high priest offers. That's his deal. And what is your responsibility? I repent and believe, and that is it. Can't do anything. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am saved. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. That's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. And I was thinking about it this week. Oh, sorry. I get caught away. The last one makes us clean. That's what he does. It's good because it makes us clean. And I was thinking about it this week because what do, you, if, what do you do with your guilt if you don't have this? I mean, what do you do with your shame, really? I mean, you've got two options. You can ignore, ignore, ignore until you're hard in your heart and this is what we do. And then it doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel like sin anymore. It just feels normal. I can just do that. I can live that way, yeah. Or what I think we do in Christendom is I think we, we think, well, I did it again. So I just need to, you know, a couple days, three, four days, be good. Right? I need to read my Bible a little extra long. I need to say a couple extra prayers. I need to be committed. I need to be in. I need to go to two services instead of one. I, whatever. And the reality is this. That's the old. We, we just go back to the law. We do. We, don't, we, we, don't, we won't admit, oh, I believe in Jesus. Forgive my sins. Yes, oh, absolutely. But we, pragmatically, we go back to the law. Why? Because we love the law. Even though we don't admit it, I've been going through Lord of the Rings again, Fellowship of the Ring, did Hobbit last week. And there's this 
Gandalf is talking to Frodo about Gollum. And if you don't know who those people are, then shame on you. Um, but he's telling, and, and he says this to, to uh, Frodo. He says that Gollum hates the ring, but he loves the ring. That, that's us with the law. We hate the law because we know we can't do it, but we love it because it makes us feel good in the moment. And we don't, the law is supposed to point us to the Savior. And it's not bad. The Ten Commandments, don't get me wrong. We should still strive to obey these things because these are the moral heart of God. But that not to be righteous because this is good for us. But we don't run to the law. We run to our high priest who has offered us and we confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is where we run. We believe because we have a God who is desiring us. If he didn't, he wouldn't have come up with the new deal. He would have left us in the old. But he came up with the new. And it was always the plan from eternity past because that's the kind of God he is. And I heard Matt Chandler, he shared this illustration that's so good, it was encouraging my soul and I want to share it with you. We have a God, I think we picture God of this angry, mean, yelling at us, waiting for us to just mess up so he can smoke us, God. That's not the God of the Bible. Just like as a parent, for those of you who have had children, you have had young kids, when they're learning to walk, and it's so exciting. You're like, oh my goodness, took a step, oh, take a picture, send a grandma, everyone's so excited. No one's really excited except for you, but that's fine. They took a step, and then they took two steps, and what do they do? They fall, and then you, they get back up. But see, we celebrate what? We celebrate the steps and the walking. We don't, we don't get mad when they fall. I cannot believe you only took six steps. You took six yesterday. You should be at seven by now. What is your problem, kid? Get up. No, we celebrate the steps. And then when they take seven, oh my goodness, he got seven. Oh my goodness, he got all the way to the wall. And, and, and we celebrate the walking, not getting mad at the falling. And then when kids get older and they start riding their bike and they take the training wheels off and they ride 50 feet and then they fall, we're not like, well, your brother made it 80 feet on his turn. What's your deal? No, we go up and we pick them up and you did it, you did it, I'm so good. And if they have a scratch on their knee, oh, it's gonna be all right. We'll put some Neosporin on it or some alcohol on it, burn real good and then you'll be back on it again, right? And then you get, and we celebrate and then they get older and if they, they blow a knee out in a football game, I can't believe you cut left. If you would have cut right, you wouldn't have blown your knee out. No, we, we go and we comfort and we'll, we'll get you back and that's God the Father. He celebrates the walking. He's not smoking you when you're down. Right, And there are times when you're down, but when we are, I will be merciful to them. I will remember their sins no more. That's the deal. It's a good deal, y'all. It transforms you from the inside out. It makes you belong. It gives you access to God Almighty, and it makes us clean. Right, And the old is gone. He says, and speaking of a new covenant, the first one's obsolete. It's obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's going away. Doesn't mean the moral code of the law is going away, but, but the sacrifices and the having to do and the having to do and the having to do, it's gone. Christ is seated. He's done. And so the encouragement for you, if you're here this morning and you're struggling with sin, your God knows. He's made you clean. He gives you the help you need. You keep fighting. You keep growing. You keep pressing forward, right? He's with you. You're not losing your, 
your familyness. You're still his. You still belong, right? You still have access. And if you're here and you're, you're like, I don't know if I'm a Christian, I don't, I, I would encourage you, look, this is the offer God's giving you, eternal life. And it's in his son. But you gotta recognize your need for it. You gotta repent and turn from your sin and believe that what Christ has done for you, that he came to earth, lived the perfect life that you couldn't live. He, he followed the law. He died as your substitute on a cross and rose on the third day. And if you believe in him and believe in that, he said, you have eternal life. That's the deal. It's a pretty good deal. I wouldn't reject it. Because either he will pay for your sin or you will. I'd much rather have his, his payment. Let me pray and we'll sing and respond. Father, I pray for uh, the truth and the reality of, of this text to encourage us, to wash over us, to move us towards uh, a deepened faith and a deepened love of you. Uh, for those in the room that need to just be reminded of your love and of your grace, that that would wash over us, that your spirit would uh, convince us even more so of that. For those who are outside of the faith and uh, wrestling with whether this is even true, Father, give them ears to hear, eyes to see that today would be the day of salvation, that they would put their faith and trust in the living God and Jesus, the Savior of the world. And for all of us, that this is the message we, we bring to the world, that we would be faithful in bringing it and representing it well to, you, to them as your priests, as your people, that we would be your church. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys can stand as we sing.